The title of this morning's message is Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Today is known by Christians as Pentecost Sunday, and it marks the anniversary of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. So today I want to talk to you about the Christian Pentecost, the anniversary that we celebrate, and the Jewish Pentecost called the Feast of Weeks. I want us to see the similarities and the differences that exist between the two holidays, because the original Feast of Weeks was a type and shadow that pointed to the Christian Pentecost that we now celebrate as spirit-filled believers. The Feast of Weeks, as the final spring festival, is called Shavuot, which is the word for sevens. This is because Shavuot was to be observed on the 50th day after Passover after seven sevens, or after seven weeks had passed, that was a second feast of harvest. In the Christian tradition, we call this festival Pentecost, which is related to the Greek word for 50. The word Pentecost is only used three times in the New Testament. Twice it is used as a reference in time. <laughs> the Apostle Paul does this in Acts 20 and in 1 Corinthians 16. He uses this word Pentecost simply to reference where he wants to be by a certain time. <laughs> he says he wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he tells us nothing about Pentecost except he wants to be there. <laughs> so the only explanation of how to understand Pentecost under the New Covenant is found in the very famous passage of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, I'm going to give you something, this isn't in here either, <laughs> that the Lord showed me. How many of you believe that they were all in the upper room and 120 people were there and they all got spirit-filled and spoke in tongues? You believe that? You know what? It doesn't say that. <laughs> when I went to do this message, it's like, Lord, everybody knows the story of Pentecost. It's like Christmas. You're like, how do I make Christmas new? <laughs> I don't want to just do the same old, same old that everyone has heard 1,400 times. <laughs> and while I was studying this out, oh, it doesn't actually say that. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, the apostles, that they were to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Pentecost. The rest of that chapter, they end up going out to watch Jesus ascend back into heaven on day 40, not day 50. Jesus ascended on day 40. That's why it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that's day 50. There's 10 days between Jesus ascending and the Holy Spirit being poured out. The 120 people are in the upper room after the disciples get back from watching Jesus ascend. Same day, day 40, 120 people are in the upper room. Well, when they take care of business, <laughs> they're short one apostle. <laughs> so they have a discussion and probably a vote because you needed 120 people in order to make something legal, so to speak. So that's what was going on there. They voted in another apostle, Matthias. Then it says, and then when the day of Pentecost was fully come, day 50, they're not in the upper room. They're in a house. <laughs> and there's not 120 of them. 
there's the disciples. <laughs> when I was like, man, I have heard this story so many times, I never actually took the time to look at the context to see if what I was told was actually so. Now, can they interpret it as if everybody, all 120, were there in the house? You know how small their houses are? <laughs> you could, but it doesn't say that. <laughs> and that's what I love about the word, is because we're always finding new things. Things we were taught that may have been inaccurate. And as we take the time to study, to ruminate, to meditate on the word, we go, oh, <laughs> it didn't say what I thought it said. That's just extra. <laughs> so when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, Acts chapter 2 tells us what happened on Pentecost, but it doesn't tell us how to understand the feast in connection with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the original Feast of Weeks. Most of us are very familiar with the pictures that the Jewish feasts paint for us. They help us to understand that Jesus is the Passover. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Here he says specifically, we can understand what Christ has done through what happened at the Passover. It was a type and shadow. And Jesus fulfilled the type and shadow of the original Passover, when God released the Jews from their Egyptian bondage. And Jesus is also the first fruits, which is celebrated three days on Easter after the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says this, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Christians don't actually usually understand what that means. <laughs> we know it has something to do with the Jewish folks. <laughs> it's something they celebrated. But what the Apostle Paul is telling us is Jesus is the first fruits of them from the dead. In other words, he's the proof that there's more to come. <laughs> he was our first fruits. So Paul spells out very clearly that Jesus in the new covenant is both the fulfillment of the old covenant festivals of Passover and first fruits. But we really don't see how in the New Testament that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fulfills the Feast of Weeks. So let's take a look at what the Old Testament says about this particular festival. All of the required festivals, along with the Feast of Weeks, are found in Leviticus 23, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Big word for meeting together. <laughs> they are my appointed feasts. Then he proceeds to talk about the Sabbaths, the Passover, the first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now for the Feast of Weeks in particular, he says this, jumping down to verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. That was what they did for the first fruits. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of a new grain to the Lord. 
you shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved with the two tenths of an ephah. And they shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. The commentary I read said that these loaves of bread were about five pounds apiece. <laughs> these were honking big loaves of bread. <laughs> Verse 18. You shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams, and they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. They got to eat those. The priest shall wave them, the bread of the first fruits, as a wave offering. And the wave offering, they always make a cross. They wave it to and from, <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> this is what the Jews would do. Now, this particular festival is not celebrated because they don't have a temple. So it's not celebrated the same way it says for them to do that in the scripture. Verse 21, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statue forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. Every Sabbath and every holy day was a day of rest. Another type and shadow. <laughs> Jesus, of course, is now the Sabbath rest. So special days are no longer required to make us holy. The blood of Jesus has already made us completely holy. It continues in verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I left this in here because that is the full thing it says about the, the Feast of Weeks. But what I love is that it ends with God taking care of the poor and the traveler and the needy. God has a way to take care of his people, and it's usually through other people. So the Feast of Weeks was a second first fruits offering. It was presented with thanksgiving for the abundant harvest of wheat. The first fruits was the barley harvest, one that Jesus is a type of. And then this one is the second harvest, and it's for the wheat. So you have two first fruits. What's special about this offering is the bread, <laughs> because it was leavened. So here, God tells them to purposely make sinful bread <laughs> and to bring it before him and wave it in a cross. Years ago, I visited a small church, and for communion, they passed a small little basket with this big, giant, fluffy bread. <laughs> and we were instructed to tear off a piece as representative of the usual communion bread. I was aghast. <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord, what do I do? They're using leavened bread for communion. <laughs> Leaven is always representative of sin. They've made my Jesus' body sinful. <laughs> I was upset. <laughs> so in my mind, they were using sinful bread for communion. And I was thinking, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> Don't you know if there's no sin in Jesus? <laughs> I took it, though, because I really didn't know that I had a basis in Scripture to say no. 
When things like that always happen to me, I take it right to the Lord. I went home and said, okay, God, did I take sinful communion? (laughs) Because if I did, I'll never do it again. (laughs) And he brought me to this scripture. He said the sinful bread was acceptable because it was presented with the blood of lambs. Thank you, Jesus. I feel much better now. (laughs) So God told me, yes, it's okay. (laughs) And so a friend of mine came, and the same thing happened to her. They passed around this big, fat, fluffy loaf of bread with leaven in it. And she's like, oh, no, they got sinful bread (laughs) representing the body of Jesus. (laughs) I was like, no, I know the answer to this one. The blood of the lamb sanctifies it. (laughs) You don't have to worry about the sinful bread. (laughs) What I found when I went looking for the answer is that many scholars believe that the leavened bread in this particular offering represents the Gentiles. Now, that makes sense because we're talking about the Jewish law. The Jews were acceptable, Gentiles were unacceptable. Then I read another commentator. Guess what he said? He said, no, it represents Jew and Gentile because they both need the blood of a lamb. They didn't see that what they were doing was foretelling what God would do through the blood of his lamb that both not only Gentiles, but Jews too, would be truly sanctified and made holy by the offering of Jesus. So we can see that in this festival of weeks, the types and shadows, the things God hides in his word that point to the new covenant and what he always wanted to have with his people. He was going to make both Jew and Gentile truly holy at the same time. in a second first fruit celebration. Jesus was the first first fruit, and Pentecost was the second first fruits. And it was the first fruits of the harvest of souls. And it took place exactly 50 days after Christ was risen from the dead. Now, according to Jewish tradition, not according to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, but Jewish tradition, when the Israelites left Egypt, Moses told them that seven weeks later, 49 days, they would be receiving the law at Mount Sinai. Again, we don't see this in the scripture, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. The Jews have all their oral traditions written down now. Jesus and the rabbis and everybody else, they not only read the Torah, but they read all of the teachings of the rabbis as well. So it does explain why they're supposed to count. Why would they be counting 49 days? Because they were waiting for something wonderful from God. So they were told to count the days. They were to expect God to do something he had never done before. And he did. He gave them the law. Now, we don't necessarily think of it as wonderful, but it really was. It was what they needed as unregenerate men Unregenerate men can only be made righteous outwardly without the blood of the new covenant. So we see in Exodus in chapter 9, starting with verse 1, it says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, 
On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love that scripture. <laughs> now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word obey, it's not obey. It means to listen attentively to give God your attention. If you will give me your attention and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, it may not look like it, but this is a marriage proposal. <laughs> God is asking Israel to be his covenant people as a whole and to be his alone. And of course, part of the marriage proposal and covenant includes the idea of fidelity. God basically says, if you want to be mine, then I must be your only God. You can only have one husband, and his name is Yahweh. So the Talmud, which is a book that holds the Jewish commentaries on the first five books and the oral traditions, says that the Israelites were told that God was actually going to lift Mount Sinai over their heads. Does that sound a little bit scary? <laughs> Here, stand under this mountain. <laughs> I won't drop it, really. <laughs> they were told that this was a representative of a Jewish canopy for the marriage ceremony. Again, we don't see that in the scripture, but this is what was written down. So they knew this was a marriage proposal. They knew this was a marriage-like covenant, that they would have one husband, not many. Women were only ever allowed to have one husband. <laughs> Women couldn't have several husbands, but they could have all the wives they wanted. <laughs> you still kind of see the juxtapose of that. So God wanted to marry his people to himself. So they understood exactly what God was offering. So they didn't go into this covenant-making idea blind. Because we don't have a lot of the Jewish traditions, we don't know what happened, we just take what's written down and go, that must be all there is. But it wasn't. There was lots of other things written down to help them understand what was going on. So when the Israelites show up at Mount Sinai and God comes down in a cloud with lightning and fire, they tell Moses, you talk to God. He is way too scary for us. <laughs> but the reason God invited everyone to this ceremony was that he wanted all of his people to know his voice for themselves. He wanted them to know him. He wanted them to know his heart for them. But they basically said, no thanks, that's, that's just way too scary. Pretty sure that will kill us. We'll let Moses do this. And you know what God did? He accommodated them. He let Moses be their representative instead of coming to God themselves. So Moses spoke with God. The giving of the law is significant for the Israelites because they not only entered into the covenant with God through his covenantal law, but God gives them their new identity. 
You see, when you become somebody's wife, you take a different name. <laughs> you become something you weren't before. Part of the law was to give them their identity. After that, they were his people. They had his name and they represented him to the rest of the world. The Israelites were to be God's witnesses to the rest of the world. and They were to witness that there was only one God, one true and living God, and his name was Yahweh. They were supposed to be witnesses by how they lived. A God that could change and give you everything you need. This was a good covenant. God was their protection. God was their provider. God was their savior. God was everything to them. This was a good covenant for unregenerate people. <laughs> God was everything. But they were supposed to bear witness to the rest of the world that this God, our God, is the only true and living God. In Isaiah 43.10, it says this. You are my witnesses, Israel, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and trust me and understand that I am the one. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. You, Israel, are my witnesses to the rest of the world. This is exactly what Jesus says to the New Covenant believers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. They were supposed to be wear witness to the reality that there is only one true and living God. Part of understanding covenant is realizing our new identity. God gave the Israelites a new identity as his people who would bear his name and his reputation. Remember when Moses says, God, you can't do this. You can't destroy us. Everyone will think you're bad. <laughs> he understood that as his people, his reputation went with them. The Israelites struggled to live according to their newly covenanted identity. In fact, Israel was committing harlotry with a golden calf before the entire process of instituting the covenant had even been completed. The Israelites had come out of Egypt, but Egypt had not come out of the Israelites. <laughs> so according to the newly covenanted law, those who committed adultery against their new husband, God, on their wedding day <laughs> were to be put to death. Under the Old Covenant, adultery is only punishable by death. And so 3,000 adulterers died that day. This, of course, stands in opposition to what we see happened under the New Covenant of grace through faith. In Acts chapter 2, after the apostles are baptized with the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues, Peter stands up and preaches that Jesus is the true Messiah and the true King of Israel. And that faith in this resurrected Messiah results in the appropriation of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Again, it points to the how many people were actually got baptized that day. They were all Galileans. <laughs> How hear we, every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born. And he goes on to name them all, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia in Egypt and parts of Libya, 
about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. He goes on and on. <laughs> we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, what meaneth this? What we as Gentiles don't know as we read this is how the Jews on that day understood the Feast of Weeks. As law-abiding Jews, they all had been counting down to the day of Pentecost. Jerusalem was once again filled beyond capacity. Again, this is one of the three festivals where all the males have to show up. Jerusalem usually held two, about 200,000, but on festival days, it could swell to two million. That's a whole lot of people, <laughs> but no place to stay. <laughs> and that's because the Feast of Weeks was one of the required festivals. So they all had to show up at the temple and bring their Thanksgiving offerings. That's why there were so many tribes and languages represented in the crowd that day. I love this. God knew that on this day, all of these people from all around are going to see what happens on Pentecost. And they're all going to hear the good news in their own language. God set up the timing. So they were all there to celebrate the wheat harvest. The Jews were raised to have the highest respect for what they understood was God's law. Most Jews acknowledge the oral laws and traditions as being as equally inspired by God as the Torah itself. The Pharisees were the ones who were the zealots. They believed everything God gave. <laughs> the Sadducees said Torah only. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't, didn't do a lot of other believing. So you have these two divisions. One of those traditions was that God delivered the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. When he did that, this is what their traditions teach. He also sent 70 tongues of fire forth from the mountain, each visiting a separate nation and proclaiming his law in their native tongue. So the idea of tongues of fire and many different languages was not a foreign concept to the Jews. And who is Peter's audience? The Jews. They knew this. They always expected their new deliverer to show up <laughs> the same way Moses had on the Passover. They were looking for the Messiah on the Passover. 50 days later, they're still looking for the same Messiah because they know the timing is right for him to appear. They know that according to their tradition, there could be tongues of fire and many different languages. I always thought this was brand new stuff. <laughs> it wasn't. They're like, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> we heard this story already. <laughs> they probably just didn't expect to see it in action, so to speak. They understood that the Holy Spirit was involved in taking the old covenant law to the nations. They just didn't realize that God would send the Holy Spirit to bring a brand new law to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, the apostles knew what they were waiting for. Jesus told them, you're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. They may not have expected it to show up the way it did, but once it did, they knew it was, was from God because of their Jewish traditions. They already heard this story, how God sent out tongues of fire to get his word out. <laughs> They understood that this was that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. God was once again sending out his spirit to minister to the nations. But this time, he was bringing a new kind of law, the law of the spirit of life, 
in Christ Jesus. Peter, in his first spontaneous sermon, tells the crowds that he and the other disciples are not drunk, (laughs) as some of them had supposed they were, but that this was that which prophesied that would come. We see this in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, these last days are the last days of the old covenant. It's not the end of the world. (laughs) This is the last days of the old covenant. God has just done something new. He says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. God is saying that in his spirit's economy, everyone is equal. Master and servant, male and female. We're still struggling with that one around the world. And they don't know it yet, but the Jews and Gentiles are also equal. (laughs) All can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter learns, of course, that this is true when he visits Cornelius' house. And the Gentiles receive the same spirit and the same gift of speaking in tongues. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. This verse uses the same symbolic language that was used in the Old Testament when one government was taken over by another government. It wasn't literal, it was symbolic. Jesus truly had defeated Satan and his kingdom and his government through the cross. And the evidence of that was that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. That's the proof that the cross worked. Also, rising from the dead is a pretty good story, too. (laughs) I also love the word notable in this verse. In Strong's Concordance, it defines the word translated notable as conspicuous. (laughs) What happened on this day was conspicuous. (laughs) And conspicuous not only means memorable, but it means obvious. To the Jews who had this understanding of the oral traditions knew that this was that. It was what God had planned from the very beginning. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter thought he was only going to be talking to Jews. (laughs) But God said, whosoever. Not just the Jews, not just the Pharisees, not just the rich, not just the males. Anybody and everybody can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. All of this has happened because Jesus is who he said he was. He is the son of David who sits at the Father's right hand. He is the one whom they helped to crucify. Ouch! (laughs) then Peter says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off as many as the Lord our God shall call and with many other words did he testify and exhort saying save yourselves from this untoward generation (laughs) they're leading you astray (laughs) Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
At the giving of the Old Covenant Law, we see 3,000 people condemned to death because the Old Covenant Law never declares a person innocent of sin. You've fallen somewhere. <laughs> you can't be completely righteous in God's sight and have any sin. It can only point out to us just how imperfect we really are and how desperately we really do need a Savior. But under the new covenant, we have the law of the spirit of life because Jesus took all of our sin on himself and he took it to its rightful end. Death, (laughs) defeated, destroyed, powerless. And then he rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus had no sin of his own. Death could not keep him in the ground. After Jesus was risen and showed himself to his disciples, Jesus stuck around for about 40 days. We don't know all that he did while he was here during that time, but if we look at scripture, he seems to pop in and out. (laughs) Can't really keep track of him, and he doesn't tell us what he's doing when he's away. (laughs) But before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. Not in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, and not in Jesus' longtime place of business, so to speak, Galilee, but in Jerusalem. They were to wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem at that time, everyone was counting the days between first fruits and the Feast of Weeks called Pentecost. The disciples only had to wait 10 days. Not very long. (laughs) But they knew that every Jew in Jerusalem was waiting for the Feast of Pentecost. And they knew that they too were in Jerusalem because of the feast day. Again, God's amazing timing and orchestration to get everybody at the right place so everybody can receive. So it's very likely they knew to expect God to show up on that very day because of their oral traditions. Now the baptism that Peter refers to in verse 8, 38, is water baptism. He's not actually telling them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's telling them that if they believe on Jesus as their Messiah, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) For the Jew, baptism was a huge deal. The Jews would have their new converts to Judaism baptized because it signified them dying to their previous way of life and being raised into their new life of Judaism. They understood the symbol. So when Peter says to these Jews that they should, quote unquote, repent, which doesn't mean to be sorry, although I'm sure they were, (laughs) it means to change their minds, to think differently. Think differently and be baptized into the name of Jesus. The Jews would have understood that they were dying to their old ways of thinking and believing and entering into the new way of life through faith in Jesus. They were to be baptized in Jesus. They would have understood that they were specifically receiving a new identity. Instead of identifying with the old covenant law as a servant, they were asked to identify with Jesus as their true Messiah, and become true sons of God. In the same way that the Israelites of the Old Testament were to receive a new identity as God's wife, God's people, because they had received the old covenant law of God, in the same way the Jews in Jerusalem at that that time were to receive a new identity as children, dearly loved children of God, because they had received his very life into themselves. To this day, the Jewish people identify themselves with the old covenant law of God. 
The Feast of Weeks was celebrated this past week, from Thursday evening at sundown to Saturday evening on sundown. This feast is celebrated like most Sabbaths, by the lighting of candles and the refraining from work. But there is no temple to bring an offering to the Lord. So instead, they study and celebrate the giving of the Torah, even though there isn't any recommendation from God to do so. <laughs> but it is recommended by their rabbis that the faithful should stay up late studying the Torah on one of these feast days. And also it is tradition for them to wear white on these feast days because they believe that Israel said, I do to God on this very day. Israel was identified with the Old Testament scriptures as both God's wife and Israel as a whole was also thought of as God's son. In the Old Covenant, he had to come in through the sun, another type and shadow. Under the new covenant of grace through faith, we who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit are now the bride of Christ, God's wife, so to speak, <laughs> and sons of God. The old covenant was merely a shadow revealing what was to come. God never really wanted that system, but they weren't going to have it any other way. <laughs> but it is only through God's acceptance of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that the Holy Spirit is now a personal gift to whosoever will believe on Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and the one and only unique Son of God. It is the Holy Spirit that ministers our new identity to us. It is only through the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us and marrying us to Christ himself, thereby making us one spirit with him and inserting us spiritually into his body on the earth that we receive the fullness of salvation and the indwelling power of God himself. Jesus told his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them in baptism. And Peter is a great example of this. Before the cross, Peter denied even knowing Jesus because he was afraid of the temple guards arresting him. But after the Holy Spirit came on Peter and he spoke with other tongues, he was as bold as a lion. You crucified your savior. <laughs> and he wasn't afraid of it. <laughs> now granted, during this time, Peter and the other disciples had already been instructed by the resurrected Lord himself about how to prove who he was from the scriptures and, and explaining to them how to operate in the kingdom of God. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first book, Luke's first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus specifically tells them that they will be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. He does not say they will receive the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> they had already received the Holy Spirit, but they had not yet received power from the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit on the first feast of first fruits for the barley harvest. In other words, Easter 
We see this in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So even though they received the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them, Jesus still tells them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that's when they would receive the power of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus had the person of the Holy Spirit within himself before he was baptized in water in order to identify with humanity. But then the Holy Spirit descended outwardly upon him to empower him to do the supernatural works of the kingdom. Like the disciples, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at a much later date from when I simply received the Holy Spirit when I first believed on Jesus. We can't get saved apart from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Everyone who gets saved receives the person of the Holy Spirit. But there are some people who get baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time when they first believe on Jesus, like the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. There isn't a formula for receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is available to all who believe on Jesus by faith. Like so many, I received the baptism with the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. In my little holiness church, at the end of service, they would usually have an altar call. And I went forward, but not for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. My life was filled with fear. Everything in my life was scary. <laughs> and I said, God, I am so tired of being afraid. That's all I said is, I don't want to be afraid anymore. And my pastor's wife came up and she laid her hand on the back of me. She, that's all she did. She just laid her hand on me. <laughs> and I got a baptism of love. I still didn't speak in tongues because my church told me that was bad. <laughs> you can't stop Jesus. <laughs> he will baptize you anyway. <laughs> so I didn't speak in tongues until much later when the Holy Spirit revealed to me that it was for me. And it was an evidence of his power in me. Love is always the evidence of Jesus living inside of us. Love is always greater than the power. You can't have the power unless you also have the love. You got to know and have the love of Christ. So on the Feast of Pentecost, we primarily celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began a tremendous and incalculable harvest of human souls. We celebrate the fellowship we have with God the Father and God the Son because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate that through the Holy Spirit and through the blood of Christ, we have been sanctified and made holy. We celebrate that God has made himself available through the Holy Spirit to every whosoever will believe. We celebrate that through the Holy Spirit, we are married to Christ and that we have been included in his bride and his body. We celebrate that through the Holy Spirit, we have received our sonship from God, our Father, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We celebrate that the Holy Spirit is a permanent gift to us. He doesn't come and go. He is a permanent gift to us as a gift of God's grace. We celebrate 
that unlike the Jews of this day, we don't have to stay up late and study the law in order to be pleasing to God. We can choose to stay up late and spend time with God because we love him and we enjoy his presence and his word in our lives. We get to have the Holy Spirit lead us into all truth. We get to operate in the gifts and the graces of the Holy Spirit. We get to have eternal life and be accepted as equals at the throne of grace. So as new covenant believers, we bring our offerings, our thanksgiving offerings and praise for the amazing, abundant, and never-ending supply of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We pray for Israel that their eyes might be open to our Father's extravagant grace made available through the blood of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we can see, accept, and walk in our true identity as sons of God and dearly loved children. I love seeing how God has hidden his new covenant plans within the pictures of the old covenant feasts. I love seeing how God has synchronized the pictures of the old covenant feast with the new covenant realities of our salvation so that we can put the pictures together and reveal an even bigger picture that was waiting for us the whole time. I'm also extremely thankful that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word and for your truth. And I love, love, love how you orchestrate the, all of those years ago when the Israelites didn't want to have an up-close and personal relationship, <laughs> that you still planned for one. You planned that through Christ Jesus, the whole world could get saved. The whole world could hear your voice for themselves. The whole world can be empowered to do the works of the kingdom. I thank you, Father God, that you have not left anything to chance and you have poured out your spirit on all flesh so that all flesh can hear you and know you. Father God, I thank you for your word and we praise you, Father God, for all that you do in and through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.